0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Long time no church. Good to be back with you opening the word. And uh, today is, is a dangerous Sunday because it is a standalone Sunday where I'm, I'm unchained from the sermon series that we usually find ourselves in, uh, and that is dangerous because we could go anywhere today, but I've decided to go somewhere, which I'm sure you'll be happy with. Uh, today we're going to do something a little bit different, uh, and that is whereas normally we would Pick a book of the Bible and go from cover to cover uh, at church. Because If you're new to our church, if you're just visiting today, you should know. Uh, at our church, we believe that when we're reading the Bible, we are hearing God speak to us. That, that every word from every book of this Bible, it's made up of 66 of them, is God-breathed. And it is good for us. And the Bible is living and active that even though it was written uh, at least, 2,000—you know some of them 2,000 years ago, but even uh, up to 3,300 years ago, that they're still speaking to us in our own situation in the 21st century in Melbourne today. And so normally we would go through books of the Bible, but today we are wedged between two different series. And so we're going to today talk about church planting. While I'm talking about church planting, really, for you, what I'm talking about is what I think you should give your life to and what I think the the purpose of your life is, what I think the the God-ordained mission is, for each one of us that we have. And so I'm not just talking about something out there or something for church pastors to do, but something that you, someone before God, is called to do even in your life today. So I want to convince you this morning that church planting is the main thing that we should be doing as a church. And that therefore, God's mission through church planting is the main thing that you yourself should be giving your life to as an individual, as a family, and of course, together as a church. And so I hope I've been very clear there. I have a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm here to convince you about that wonderful plan this morning. And it's important we do this because at City on Hill, we talk a lot about church planning. We celebrate a lot about church planning. But often I get those opportunities to step back and think about the why behind what, What's the deal? with church planning. Why is that a priority for us? And we particularly at, at our church, you know, we were planted five and a half years ago. Uh, and then that, that COVID thing happened, if you remember, there was those few years. And, and then uh, we've come out of that and we, we, we no longer feel like a church plant. Like we no longer feel like, like just this new baby. Rather, we feel a bit more established. And it can be easy to move on and forget where we came from and forget the values that Need to shape us even now because we are actually coming to the point where we should be thinking about hey, where are we going to plant a church next? Where are we going to plant churches next? And so today I've got five reasons why we as a church want to prioritize church planting. Five reasons, and they all build on top of each other. uh, And our Bible reading fits in neatly with the first. And so let me start with the first. The first is that Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is our treasure. You know, think about it. You and I live in a world where the most pressing reality is that Jesus has risen from the dead. The most influential thing in our world right now is the reality that Jesus died, was buried, and then he rose again from the dead. That means that the most pressing reality in our world is not what we might see on. The cover of the Herald Sun this morning, or well, not what we might see on, on, on the cover of any particular newspaper or website, it means that the most important thing in the world is not how the economy is going. It's not all that important stuff about geopolitics, macroeconomics, international relations. Most important thing in the world isn't who's on top of the ladder at the moment. No, the most influential and meaningful thing that has ever happened in the world that you and I occupy right now is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why the Bible says to us that if if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you and I should be pitied. People should feel sorry for you and me and what we're doing here this morning if that reality didn't happen, if Jesus didn't rise. Everything hangs on Jesus' resurrection. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you have been saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says that is the reality, that is the truth of first importance. That means that the most important thing for you and for me and for the world to know is the message of Jesus' resurrection. Because if Jesus has risen, everybody who you know, their life can change. Everybody who you know can be reconciled with God the Father. There is no circumstance, there is no moral failure, there is no situation that Jesus cannot, or God cannot reverse for good, as he has done in the death of his son, Jesus. That's where we come to this, this story in the Gospels. This story that Jesus tells there in Matthew 13, where, where a man, he's, he's passing by a field, and he, he, he must notice that maybe there's a treasure chest kind of half pointed out of the field or something. He, he noticed that there's some treasure there buried in that field for some reason. And so he goes to sell everything he has in his life just to get that one thing, that field, so that through that field, he can obtain that treasure, and it's fitting that, if we were to read on in that passage, you know, immediately after telling this series of parables, of which this treasure one is, is one of them, Matthew, the, the biographer here, the, the, the one who brought together some, some eyewitness testimony about Jesus in his life, puts ne- another episode in Jesus' life where he, he's coming to his hometown. And Jesus walks into his hometown, but Matthew specifically points out for us that his hometown, people who knew him, his, his neighbors... They rejected him. And Jesus therefore moved on very quickly from that hometown because of their unbelief. And so Matthew puts those two together because he wants to tell us something, wants us to see something, wants us to tell that show us that, that Jesus isn't talking about some random guy. Jesus is talking about himself, that it's even his hometown have rejected him as the treasure of their life. And so we live in a world where there is good news of great joy available for all people. Everyone in this room and everybody connected to those of us in this room, everybody in the world, that good news of great joy is that you and I can be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus. We can receive eternal life when we come to see Jesus as the treasure, the one thing that we're going to give our lives for. Now, if we step back from the busyness of our lives, the distractions of our our other priorities I mean, it's almost too good to be true, this reality. You can kind of understand why some people think that we've made this up. This is an incredible reality that you and I get to be reconciled with the God who knit us together in our mother's womb, who made us in his image. We get to know him and live with him in our lives. This is an incredible good news. And that even though we have all sinned against him and rejected him and tried to pave our own way and and craft our own life apart from him. Jesus died in our place for the very sin that contributed to his death. And then Jesus rose again so that we might be free, we might be forgiven, we might no longer have to own our own guilt and shame because Jesus took it upon himself. And Lord, we, we, we get all that. Purely by responding to Jesus as the treasure of our lives. Making Jesus the the treasure of our lives. And you can't make that message up. It's unbelievable. It's it's, it's too good to be true. We we, we need God's help to believe that. It is so good and such good news. And what that story also tells us is that if, if we've encountered Jesus as the treasure of our life, And we saw this recently in our series in in 2 Corinthians. If we've encountered Jesus as the main thing, the priority, the treasure in our life, then just like that man who sold all that he had to buy that field, everything in our lives is going to be shaped around what's at the center of it. Everything in our lives is going to be shaped around the most pressing reality in our life, that Jesus has risen again. And so when we find Jesus as our treasure, our priorities change The direction of our lives change. Our character changes. Our relationships change. Our sexuality even is shaped around him. Our purpose, our mission now aligns with Christ's mission. And so this should fuel church planning because you and I now have the treasure. You and I have found the treasure. I remember a few years ago... uh, one of our church planners is part of City on a Hill, Andrew Grills, who now leads City on a Hill Geelong. Uh, he went to the US for a church planning conference and then he didn't come back. And the reason he didn't come back was that in 2010, uh, it was announced by an 80 year old art dealer named Forrest Fenn that he had hidden 10 kilograms of gold nuggets, uh, 19th century coins, rare jewels, and more inside a small bronze treasure chest and he had hidden it somewhere in the United States. And he'd also written this cryptic poem to try to help the would-be treasure hunters discern and try to work out where in the United States this treasure was buried. And so Grillsy's an outdoorsman, uh, and more than that, he's a human being, uh, and so he, he, he heard about this story. And then he realized, hey, I'm in the United States. And so he rang back home to his wife and somehow amazingly got the permission to stay in the United States, and go on a treasure hunt to find this treasure. Because he thought that he'd cracked the code. He thought that he'd he'd solved the riddle, solved the poem. And so his eyes widened at the thought of this this more than $2 million worth of gold in this treasure. Unfortunately, there were thousands of others whose eyes widened as well. And so more recently, in 2020, Grillsy didn't find the treasure. Uh, Another person found the treasure. Apparently, a, a medical student named Jack... And he spoke about the attempts that he went to, this guy, uh, to find that treasure that he he apparently had solved the riddle and then he spent two years trying to work out in this specific place that the poem pointed to where exactly the treasure was. He spent 25 full days on his hands and knees trying to work out and, and, and dig to find the treasure in a very specific place. And he said after he found it, this treasure hunt was the most frustrating experience of my life. There were a few times when I exhausted, covered in scratches and bites and sweat and pine pitch and nearing the end of my day's water supply, sat down on a down tree and just cried alone in the woods in sheer frustration. Now people dream about what they would do if they were to find treasure. And people go to massive lengths to try to find that treasure. And guess what? You've got it. In Jesus you have the treasure. You and me have found, or perhaps more accurately, been found by a treasure more valuable than any kind of inflation, rust, or robbery, vulnerable treasure that our world might pursue. We have the greatest treasure that lasts forever and cannot be taken from us. And sometimes when it comes to financial treasure, we sit back and think, oh, imagine what we would do if we found $2 $2 million. Imagine what we would do if we won the lottery. I'd do this, I'd do this, I'd do that. If we sit back and think, imagine what we would do if we found eternal, lasting treasure, you know what the answer is to imagine what we'd do? We'd go and plant churches. Because we want the world to have the treasure. We want the world to know what we know. We want the world to experience Jesus for themselves. And so we would plant churches because the world needs to know Jesus. We'd plant churches because that is the way that the world is going to know Jesus. Because Jesus is the treasure. That's the first reason Jesus is the treasure. Number two, it's fitting that because he's the treasure then, that building his church is the main thing that God is doing in the world right now. Building his church is the main thing that God is doing in the world right now. I mentioned it before, that the entire Bible. Is a story, cover to cover, of God building his church, raising a people, gathering together a family. And we know that that starts in the garden with our first parents, Adam and Eve, but we also know that that didn't go so well. They sin, they deceive, they disobey the Lord. And yet just three chapters in, Genesis three fifteen, God commits, he, he promises, hey, I'm going to right this wrong that you have caused. He promises he's going to send a seed that someone in the midst of the family is going to come and be a snake crusher and free his people. In Genesis 12, we find out that that seed is going to come through a family, Abraham's family. And so he chooses Abraham. And even though Abraham can't have children, him and his wife are far too old, miraculously, Isaac comes along. And then from Isaac, there's Jacob. And then from Jacob, he has 12 sons, and those sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the sons become families, the families become clans, the clans become tribes, the tribes become a nation. God is building a people there in the story of the Old Testament. But we know that they don't really fulfill their calling. Their calling is to be a light to the nations. And yet we know the Old Testament tells us there was sin, there was compromise, there was syncretism, there was idolatry. And so God's people are judged, and they're exiled, sent away. And then we looked at the last year in Ezra and Nehemiah. They, they then are called out. After a period of exile, they, they return to the city that God has for them to rebuild, to regather, to reset themselves upon God and his word. And so the mission starts again. God starts gathering people again there in the Old Testament. And so if we're to sum up the story of the Old Testament, it's the story of of God building His church, of God God gathering His people. But then at the end of the Old Testament, there's this period of silence until good news of great joy for all people comes that Jesus Himself, God, takes on flesh and enters in the treasure, arrives in the world. And if we look at Jesus' life, it mimics a lot of what the story of the Old Testament is because Jesus starts to call people out. He starts starts to gather people. He calls fishermen to come and be apostles for him. He calls tax collectors to be his disciples, former Pharisees. He starts healing paraplegics and commissioning leaders and restructuring the lives of prostitutes. Momentum's building around him, crowds are flocking to him. He's got his posse, he's gathered people. And just as it feels like momentum is starting to rise, he's betrayed and he's tried. And ultimately, he is crucified upon a cross. But before he died, he said to his disciples, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And so the loss of the cross there is actually the conduit of God's power to gather people, to save people, to bring together a family. And so the New Testament goes on. And we see that God continues through the ministry of the apostles, just like Jesus, to gather people. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so just like the Old, the New Testament is a story of God building His church, God gathering people together. And so from 12 disciples back then to today, some 2.5 billion people claiming to follow Jesus, we know that history itself is a story of God gathering a people together, building a family. And so you and I have been born into this world that he's right now being actively compelled to come, see the treasure, come and follow Jesus. It's as if we've been born into this giant game of of spiritual tiggy. You know, today, thousands of people are going to get tagged. Thousands of people are going to join the family. We might not see it in our own lives. We might not see it here this morning. But around the world today, thousands of people are going to repent and bow the knee to Jesus. Because God, right now, is building his church. God right now is gathering people to himself. And so the main thing that is happening in the world right now gets no airtime on the nightly news. It doesn't make the paper. It is the quiet, continual, and unrelenting mission of God in the world to gather people to himself. Just like in the beginning, it happens because God said it would happen. God makes promises, and then those promises are fulfilled. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus said. God is building his church in the world right now. Now, there is no more basic takeaway, if you were to read the whole story of the Scriptures from cover to cover, that the main thing God is doing in the world right now is gathering a people, is building his church. And so you could say that that God is the, the prototypical church planter, that he is right now gathering his core team. His church is just the capital C church that he is gathering together around the treasure that is Jesus. And we also get a glimpse of the future there in the New Testament that actually he's going to keep doing it until he's got people of every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation gathered around his throne. And so that mission is going to continue until he presents his bride, the church, spotless and pure to his son, The Lord Jesus on the final day. Now, when I was about 20, uh, I was at at university and I was doing a a sports management degree. I wanted to be the next Jerry Maguire for those people who are old enough to remember the movie Show Me the Money. I wanted to be in the know with the, the, the sporting stars and the sporting world of the day. Uh, and I started to, as I kind of went through that course, you know, see that, hey, this is a little bit of a fickle, fickle vision for the rest of my life. And so like a lot of uni students at that time, you got that ex- existential crisis of, of what should I do with my life? What, what, and I was a Christian, what does God want me to do with my life? Maybe you're asking yourself that right now. We don't have to be confined to, to university age to be asking ourselves that. It's a big question. But if Jesus is your treasure, the answer to that question is, though it may look different for all of us, actually, in essence, the same for each one of us. Because the answer to that question is the same answer that Jesus gave when, as a boy, he was found by his parents. And they asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I must be about my father's business. What should you do with your life? What should you give your life to? What does God want you to give your life to? The same thing that he's doing right now. Building his church. Building his church. We should be involved in building God's church. Jesus is the treasure. Building his church is the main thing that God is doing in the world right now. Number three, Jesus explicitly called us into church planting. You know, we don't need to read between the lines uh, of, of kind of what the story of scripture kind of implies for us that we should be about. Jesus told us what we should be about. There in Matthew 28 before he left. He had his disciples with him, and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, go, therefore, into all the world and get decisions from all nations. You know, getting people to decide for Christ is, is an awesome thing. It is a good thing. But if it was the main thing, then we wouldn't be gathered right now. We'd be out street preaching. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be gathering together right now. We, we, we'd be itinerant evangelists traveling around trying to just tell as many people as possible and get them to decide and then move on. Notice Jesus also doesn't say, go into all the world and heal everybody from all nations. Now, of course, it's, it's a great, gracious thing to see people healed, whether by medicine or miracle. But if that was the main thing, then we'd want to be playing in hospitals and not churches. Instead, Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples. And he doesn't leave the definition of disciple up to us. He tells us what it should include, baptizing and teaching. And we know that baptism is that rite of passage into the family of God, into the gathered people. Teaching and observation or obedience Can only happen in the context of a community of people who together are committed to following the commands of Jesus, to obeying Jesus together. We can't follow the one another's or obey the one another's without being with one another. And so therefore, the make disciples call of Jesus here in the Great Commission is a call to evangelize people, but then also shepherd them in the context of an ongoing community of people, all trying to follow Jesus together. That is, it's the work of church planting. To obey the Great Commission requires us making ecosystems in which people are baptised and taught where we can observe all that Jesus has commanded us together. And so it requires church planting. Fourthly, the apostles followed Jesus into church planting. Now if we had any questions at all about what did Jesus mean in the Great Commission, one of the obvious answers to how we could find out what he meant was to look at the lives of the original audience and what they went and then did. And when we look at the lives of the disciples who were there on the mountain, hearing Jesus tell them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, we see that they went and planted churches. Thankfully, we have a book in the Bible called the Book of Acts, more formally known as the Acts of the Apostles. It literally says, this is what the apostles went and did. And so we have all that they did in response to the commands of Jesus. Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so essentially there, Jesus is telling them that, hey, you're going to have to move house. You're going to have to head out from here because more people need to know about me. You're going to have to go to new cities and new places, take the treasure that now sits at the center of your lives and gather new people that they might also experience the treasure themselves. And so in the book of Acts we see that the church spread out and sometimes it spreads a little bit too slowly and so God lets persecution come in, in Acts chapter 9 and so that kind of the Christians flee Jerusalem running for their lives but also running with the treasure to take to other parts of the world. And that continues to go on and we get to Acts chapter 19 where we hear about the apostle Paul. And he's housed up in Ephesus. He stays in Ephesus for three years. and there he, send, uh, he writes a lot of his letters. But as we're told that he, he went like, very often, teaching uh, in the synagogue and then teaching the disciples who were gathered from his preaching together into the church there. And we're told in, in Acts chapter 19, that while Paul remained in Ephesus, preaching and teaching for three years, that while he was there, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. And so if Paul stayed in the same place for three years, how did all the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord? It's because Paul stayed there, but he sent out people to go and plant churches to all of Asia so that others could hear the word of the Lord. And so the gospel went out and this new message went to new cities and therefore gathered new communities of new Christians. And we know that that involved church planting, because we have the whole rest of the New Testament. And what is the rest of the New Testament? It's letters to church plants. The New Testament is made up of letters written to church plants. We just looked at one of them for 12 weeks. The second letter written to the church plant in Corinth. And so we only have the New Testament because of church planting. Romans, and Galatians, and Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossians, and Thessalonians, and the Corinthians. And so what the disciples did after hearing the Great Commission is they went and planted these churches in all these places throughout the Roman Empire. It's been said before that that church planting is the most effective evangelistic strategy under heaven. And we can see why. Because God is behind it, Jesus commanded it, and then the apostles went and did it. And so if we truly want to see people meet Jesus and grow up in Jesus and be discipled, into the image of Jesus, we will plant churches. And the opposite is also true. If we aren't very passionate about people coming to meet Jesus and grow up in Jesus and be discipled into the image of Jesus, we won't plant churches. So our desire for people meeting Jesus is directly proportional to our desire to plant churches. Now, of course, we might step back and think, hang on, we're 2,000 years removed from those, that first generation. You know, they're, they're, look at how many churches there are here in Melbourne. There's so many churches. Aren't there enough already? And we could ask or answer that question with another question, is are there enough Christians already? Are there enough Christians in the world already? I hope, like me, your answer would be no, because of the churches that we do have, there are still millions of people, even in our own city, our city alone who are not going to those churches, who have no desire to go to those churches. And so, of course, yes, we should be about revitalizing and renewing existing churches, but actually one of the best ways to do that is to plant more of them. The emphasis of the New Testament isn't on about helping to fix things so that others might come to us, but rather going out to the people with the treasure, the good news of Jesus. And so to plant churches for the 5 million people in Melbourne who aren't yet going to the churches that already exist, we need new churches. To plant churches to reach all the different types of people in Melbourne, different ethnicities, different languages, different schedules, different interests, different subcultures, we need more churches. To plant or to reach the people who are coming to Melbourne as we, thank you, become first over Sydney in how big we are as a city and reach all the new people flocking to our city, we need more churches. And which is why, number five, the fifth reason is that we have received a legacy of church planting at City on a Hill. The fifth reason we should plant churches is that we have stepped in to a legacy of church planting at City on a Hill. You know, by the time that Jesus tells his disciples the, the Great Commission and he ascends to his Father's right hand, we're told that there are 120 followers of Jesus, they're gathered in Jerusalem. And then Peter preaches a killer sermon and 3,000 people are changed and start to follow Jesus as well. And then from Jerusalem, the the gospel spreads out and Stephen in Acts 9 becomes the first martyr for the faith and churches are planted in Antioch which is in in Turkey in Thessalonica which is in Macedonia, in Corinth which is in Greece. And for centuries Christians continue to pass the baton on to people in new places and new parts of the world. And so history can tell us a little bit about the spread of that good news, the spread of the treasure. By AD 80, Christianity had spread to France and Tunisia. 20 years after that, the first Christians were reported in Algeria and Sri Lanka. By AD 150, the gospel reaches Portugal and Morocco. In Austria, by 174, and then Switzerland and Belgium. By AD 350, there's 32 million Christians in the Roman Empire. By AD four, 32, St. Patrick heads to Ireland to preach the gospel to them. A hundred years later, the first missionary team heads to England and they baptised 10,000 people in the first year. By AD 635, first Christian missionaries reached China. In 740, Irish monks took the gospel to Iceland. In 900, missionaries took it to Norway. In 1200, the Bible was now available in 22 languages. In 1491, missionaries arrived in the African Congo. In 1498, Kenya had its first baptisms. In 1550, or between 1555 and 1562, there were 2,000 churches planted in France alone. And in that time, Protestants took the gospel to Brazil. In 1640, Jesuit missionaries reached the Caribbean. After 200 years of settlement, there was a, a great awakening in America led by people like George Whitfield and, and Jonathan Edwards, who themselves started praying for what they heard of as this, this land down under, And then those prayers were answered where, along with a lot of other things, Reverend Richard Johnson brought the gospel on the First Fleet in 1788. In the early 19th century, the first indigenous preacher, Thomas Bennelong, was converted, baptized and set about reaching his own people. In 1835, businessmen from Launceston named Faulkner and Batman led the first church service. Batman led the first church service in Melbourne. The first clergyman appointed in Victoria was a Reverend Grills, who was a descendant of Andrew Grills, who I mentioned before. He baptised 55 men and women in his first year. In 1839, the foundation stone of the St. James Old Cathedral, at that time probably known as the St. James New Cathedral in West Melbourne, was laid uh, and then opened for services. In 2007, a small team from St. James Old Cathedral gathered to pray and plant a church in the Docklands that would then be known as City on a Hill. 10 years later in 2017, a team from City on a Hill. We already lived out in the eastern suburbs. We we got together to plant a church in the eastern suburbs, City on a Hill, Melbourne East. There we have the legacy of what you and I are enjoying today. The legacy of what you and I have stepped into. God is building his church in the world. And we have been particularly graced with this legacy, this, this responsibility. And it would be foolish and unfaithful of us to be the one generation that stops it to whom much is given much will be expected and so we don't be that we don't want to be that generation where the history from now you know 100 years from now there'll be someone preaching a sermon tracing back that and it's like and then kind of 23 years into the 21st century there was just quiet just just silence just nothing seemed to happen. It all kind of dried up there in, in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. No. You know, you could insert every local church that you and I know, because every local church that you and I know was once a church plant and therefore actually does have the legacy of church planting. But what tends to happen is that as we get established and we start to think instead of in, in maintenance terms instead of mission, Because buildings need repair and budgets need to be worked and policies need tweaking. And so churches, as we grow up, start to get needy and turn in on ourselves. But God forbid we be the ones whom this legacy stops with here in the 21st century. We need to be about church planting. Let me finish with a story just to make church planting local. Uh, I've got a picture on the screen, uh, a picture of a baptism. Uh, this young man is Rob. Uh, Rob, who's getting baptized, uh, you might see him around, he's, he's part of our church. Uh, but, but Rob's story is one that, that really typifies what we need to be about and why we plant churches. Because Rob uh, was raised in the eastern suburbs, very educated, his family wasn't Christian at all. Uh, And he was a very successful man, and you could talk to him about this uh, one Sunday when you see him, Uh, who, after high school and after university, uh, everything he says seemed to be working for him. He was uh, making a lot of money. He was doing well. He was successful in, in, in the world's terms. But even as he experienced that success, something was gnawing at him that never quite settled, that he was wrestling. There must be more to life than this. And so he started asking the big questions of life. And naturally, where do young people go? When we start asking the big question, we go to YouTube or Google. And so he went to YouTube and started watching things that started to then center around the Bible and the existence of God. And uh, Rob remembered an episode from his high school days uh, where he thought of the one Christian that he had heard of because his math teacher back at high school uh, was in one uh, moment engaged in a bit of a debate with uh, some kids who were kind of... Uh, scoffing at christianity and his math teacher stood up and said no actually I, I, i'm i'm a christian and so rob reached out to his high school math teacher and said, hey you know i've got these questions i, I, I want to uh, start going to church do you know a church that i could go to and so he found his former math teacher mr humberstone on facebook uh, and Bryn said yeah you should come to my church Sydney on a hill in Melbourne's east. You know, we met at Phoenix Park Community Centre. You should, you should come. And so Robert came along, and Robert became a Christian, and now Robert uh, wants others to experience the treasure that he himself experienced. And so this picture here, uh, why I love it, is that this picture is the work of church planting. One Christian living his life faithfully and yet silently or you know, going about his business and yet living for Jesus and then inviting, when he has the opportunity, connections into God's family the church, and then the church receiving and discipling these new Christians and the circle of eternal life continues. You know, there are millions of Roberts in our city right now. There are millions of Roberts in our country right now. Millions of people curious. Research tells us 33% of non-Christian Australians would say yes if invited along to church. The reality is we don't have the churches to invite them to. If they all said yes, we don't have the churches to cater for all the yeses we would get if we invited people to church. And so statistics tell us that new churches welcome more new people, new churches renew existing churches, new churches create new momentum, new churches revive stale faith, and new churches see more Roberts join the church and experience Jesus as the treasure. We need to be about church planting, because Jesus is the treasure. Building his church is the main thing that God is doing in the world right now. Jesus explicitly calls us into church planting. The apostles followed him into church planting, and you and I have now got the baton in our hands to step into the legacy of church planting. So you don't need the the clouds to part uh, and the voice of God to beam down from heaven to tell you what you should give your life to. He might be doing it through this talk. You should be about church planting. Now that might look slightly different, as I said, for each one of us. If you are contributing to our church, we need healthy churches to multiply. And so if you're contributing to our church, praise God, you're in the work of church planting. Some of you should be thinking about planting a gospel community in your living room. Because that's where church planting starts, as people are gathered around God's Word. And so that should be the calling upon you. We need a healthy church so that we can multiply. Some of you have the gift of making money. And it's a God-given gift that you should see as given to you so that you might invest in what God is about, building His church. Some of you should think about being church planters. And others of you should think about badgering others in your lives who you know should be church planters because we need more leaders. Jesus says, the one barrier to revival, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers a few. We need more laborers. Some of you should be chomping at the bit and badgering me about when can I join a core team to plant a church. Do you know any core team? Do you know any church plants happening that we can help the gospel get out there? We're all going to play slightly different roles, but we should be convicted that we should be about our Father's business, investing, contributing, and enjoying the gift of being involved in God's work in the world through church planting. God is doing something profound. God is doing something beautiful. He's done it in your life, but he doesn't want it to stop with you. He wants us now to be about church planting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work in the world. And um, we praise you for the privilege of having caught us up in what you're doing in the world. Lord, you could, you could be doing this apart from us. You could be doing this while we are blinded to what you're doing. And yet, you've helped us see Jesus be the, as the treasure. And you've helped us call us up as he called his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations go and and plant communities gather Christians together that we might praise you and praise you in such a way that people might see our good works and give praise to our Father in heaven and so Lord fulfill your work through us we pray fill us with your Holy Spirit apart from you we can do nothing apart from you the legacy stops with us and so please don't let that happen but use us for your mission Lord around the water cooler at work in a small talk with friends and family. Lord, we pray that you might use whatever you can to help us be people who shine for Jesus in our daily lives. Lord, help us be visible Christians going about our lives so that we might multiply that faith into our world. And that being multiplied, we might see Christians gather and churches multiplied as well. So be with us, bless us, and we want to praise you for the cosmic plan that you have in bringing all things to yourself. Bless us, we pray, and use us for your glory, we ask. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.